Well, welcome back to Rhythms of Grace. Uh, I name, my name is Nate, and I'm here with Sung Kim, who is the lead pastor of Grace Church. And um, we have been talking about all sorts of stuff, but we've, we've, we've recently sort of moved into a really fascinating discussion about uh, not, not seasons and rhythms so much as phases stages stages that's a better word that's a better word um and uh and so we're actually going to tackle two stages uh is oh it stages boy. two yeah, stages two okay. stages either we have to talk really fast <laughs> that's right that's right or we just have to do a really bad job with each of them <laughs> that's right um so we we talked about infancy last episode and so i'm assuming that if we're going in chronological order we're moving on to the next stage of development yeah, and so Eric Erickson would call the next stage early childhood, which he would call about 18 months to three years. And, and for those of you who are parents, you know this phase. This is when your child, their favorite word is no. Yeah. <laughs> right? Probably their next favorite word is mine. Yep. yep. And, and their least favorite word at the bottom of the entire list is yes. Right, right. It's the terrible twos. It is. It's, oh, yeah. And so he, he would kind of say this is the stage where you develop either a healthy and robust sense of autonomy or uh, this is also the stage where shame, more so than any other stage, is either uh, developed or created or just, you know, um, just really accentuated in, in a kid's life. It's a, it's a really interesting uh, sort of juxtaposition of those two words. Can you Can you help me? understand autonomy a little bit more um yeah let's start with that uh i know all about shame we've <laughs> talked about that <laughs> i don't need i don't need help understanding shame but autonomy well uh, uh l- let me do this l- let me get into that after we talk about shame okay great because uh, i think it'll be hu- uh, uh, it'll be more helpful to understand the contrast so you know just in, in this phase like when kids say no it's not it's not that they're actually trying to disconnect from their parents as much as they're trying to create this self-differentiation, mm. right? Their own sense of identity. And so, uh, because through infancy, their life is wrapped around one or both parents. Right. And so now it's a phase where they're trying to learn, who am I? Mm. And so th- th- it comes across as that they're asserting themselves. And, and and so you say like, no, or mine. And I, I remember when my daughter Elsa, w- w- she was about three and my son, Micah was about one, and uh, like she, I remember she would always set up all of her dolls like all in a row, and she would play with them. And, and Micah, who was just like crawling at the time, I, I remember was crawling closer and closer to all her dolls. Mm-hmm. A- and <laughs> I can imagine the panic level rising. Oh yeah, and, and all she said, well, it, it's so funny because um, she would she would always call Micah baby. That, that was his name, according okay. to her. And, and she'd be like, no, baby, no, 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 baby, no. And, and then as he came to grab some of them, she'd be like, baby, baby, no, no, mine. Mm, yep. <laughs> right? And so it, it's, it's actually a healthy part of autonomy, okay. uh, of understanding yourself differentiated from uh, other people. Okay. And so this is also the phase where shame is easily and readily exposed, especially if you're as parents, if they're overly harsh and critical. Hmm. And so, you know, I've been to grocery stores or, or out, out where I've seen like moms scolding their child. I, I should be fair. I, I, I see more dads do that too. Okay. <laughs> but, but I like anytime I, I, and again, 
It's not that I've never done that either. Right. I was going to say, I've done plenty of scolding. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say. Uh, but um, especially when it's really bad, um, you know, I, I need to compare so I don't feel so bad about my yeah, scolding. <laughs> I, I, I often think, man, I hope your child doesn't grow up to be like you. Oh, dang. <laughs> <laughs> Is that just me? Not everybody's gonna, next time somebody <laughs> sees you in the store, they're going to be like, oh, no, I know what he's thinking. <laughs> it's true. Um, and, and I remember one day I witnessed a scene just like this. And, and I remember thinking that, like, man, I hope your daughter doesn't grow up to be just like you. And right then, a, the grandmother appeared scolding the mother. Oh, man. In the same loud voice with which the mother was scolding her, her daughter. And again, it's, it's so easy during that phase to just kind of like catch it mm. and, and just really like that becomes your normal operating yeah. system. Yeah. Um, and, and so especially in family systems and as parents, this is this is the phase where affirmation is so uh, helpful and needed uh, to bring healing and a robust sense of emotional health. So what happens, help me understand how eliminate, like not providing that, how does that produce shame? Like how does, how does not providing affirmation, how does that then translate into a a child or, or an individual sort of experiencing shame? Yeah, so it doesn't have to be words that are said to make uh, a child feel like something that, that that's, there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. O- oftentimes it could even be words withheld. Okay. You know, so let's say a, a, a little girl um, accidentally, you know, wets her pants um, and, and she's out of, you know, she's past potty training. Like as a parent, uh, you can either, this is never the intention, but this is what happens, shame mm. your yeah. child in front of others because right. they're not the perfect child. Right. Or you can uh, parent them in a way that says, oh, it was an accident. You know, like there's n- there's nothing hinging on your worth and identity and right. relationship to us. Right. I, I think I'm starting to see the connection. Whereas if a child is trying to establish who they are as a person and you're not affirming that, the message they receive, or maybe you give explicitly, God help us, is that who you are as an individual is not what it should be. Right. And that sort of is what it creates the foundation of shame, saying not just I did something wrong, but there is something wrong with me or who who I am or like how I'm developing as a person. Right. And so if you develop that, like a great sense of shame that actually hinders any sense of autonomy, this is who I am. And and there's a sense of, I I need to cover that up or hide that because Mm. it is shameful. And so the thing that's really interesting is just, there's a psychologist, Martin Seligman, and he's written some really fascinating books that I can't think of off the top of my my head. I think one is called Flourish. Uh, Maybe look it up you'll have to youtube it or google it (laughs) yeah uh but the thing that he says is one of the main factors in whether a person gets permanently hurt or not and this is into adulthood isn't the severity of a situation a crisis or an accident or a tragedy that is not what uh what determines whether a person like whether they carry that wound uh, further into life or whether they grow from it, right? Okay. So for some people, they get sidelined and you experience post-traumatic stress. Mm. Uh, at the same time, if you look at some of the great leaders, public leaders in history, many of them grew up in very harsh situations. And you think like, how is it they actually thrived? And, and instead of post-traumatic stress, there's a lot of post-traumatic growth. Right. 
And, and the thing that Martin Seligman will say is, is whether somebody feels uh, helpless and out of control in that situation. So mm-hmm. it's not the severity of the situation as much as whether somebody feels helpless in that situation. And, um, and so that's where the sense of autonomy is really important as you grow into adulthood because this stage actually builds uh, a person's sense of resilience. And that means you're not this passive, dependent agency that's you know, waiting on the situation to change. Right. Autonomy would, set, would say, I, I have it in my control to, to take actions or make decisions that will change the outcome or improve the situation um, and, and that's the opposite of shame, which would essentially say, I'm, I'm helpless, like, this is who I am, I, it won't be any different, I can never be who I'm supposed to be. Um, uh, that makes sense, that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I think when you think of the role that shame plays in crippling us in, in our walk with God, I, I think it's a huge thing. Um, I, I remember um, talking to one young man, and uh, I remember asking him, I, I can't remember the, the, the content, the entire content of what we talked about, but I, I do remember the one question I asked him. And I said, hey, Ted, like when God sees you, I asked him, like how, what does God feel about you? Mm-hmm. And he like paused and, and he hung his head a bit and he said, son, uh, God is disappointed. Wow. He is sad and he's angry. Because I'm not a good person. <laughs> That's a heavy burden to carry. That is. And, and on the outside, you know, he's a happy person. He, he's, you know, socially just really winsome. But, like, deep down inside, like, th- this is the kind of shame that he was carrying. And, and I think all of us carry yeah. uh, it, it, in different aspects and to different extent in our lives. So how do we, how do we kind of, let's assume we're adults and we're experiencing a sense of shame in, in relationship to God. How do we begin to sort of walk ourselves through this this stage? How do we begin to, to move ourselves past it or to combat the voices of shame that we might be hearing or that are kind of keeping us stuck in sort of this developmental stage? That's a really good question. Tune in next week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you. Yeah. What do you do? For me, there's a uh, there's a huge part of um, it's not quite meditation, but it is uh, like telling myself the truth re- repeatedly. Because I mean, at least for for me, shame is on a loop. You know, shameful sort of internal talk is on a loop. And and sometimes I will say something out loud, and my wife will look at me and be like, "Why? How could you possibly think that?" And mm-hmm. I'm like, "I don't know. It's just what my brain's telling me right now." You know, right. um, and uh, and so for me, there's a lot of it that's like like letting a truth that perhaps I know in my head sort of begin to overwhelm or override what kind of runs subconsciously all the time. And that can be all, that can be a whole bunch of different things. I mean, I actually, I I took a, I took a silent retreat a couple years ago and I actually came out of that retreat. Um, I spent a week alone in a cabin, um, Sounds like hell to me. Yeah, it was. I loved it. It was so good. It took me like four days to reacclimate to normal life because I hadn't spoken in a week. Um, uh, but 
I came away with that literally with like four truths that I feel like God had given me that I just repeated to myself every morning and all day. Because part of what opened up in my heart during that week was I realized that there were, it, they, those were all in direct contrast to four lies that I put things like that I'm alone or that God doesn't see me, um, that, that I'm a quitter. I mean, just like these things that I, over the course of the week, I realized were messages that when you don't have anything else to do, you start to hear your own brain, right? You start to hear your own thoughts. And, um, and out of that, you know, in a, after what was really a long and very, very difficult night of, of wrestling, you know, with God and with myself, I had like these four short truths that I wrote down and I just told myself every morning and all day in the car for, for weeks. Um, so, and most of them were sort of anti-shame messages, mm. right? That I'm yeah. loved, that I'm a fighter. You, like j- those are simple things, but I realized they were the opposite of what I spent my entire life saying. Mm. Man, for those listeners, if you resonate with that, <laughs> contact Nate and let him be your <laughs> spiritual guide for a silent retreat. Or I'll at least send you an email with those four truths. <laughs> <in it. laughs> now that's so good. And, and you know, for me again, like we're so different and at first blush, I'd be like, oh, you know, I don't feel shame because I'm pretty shameless about so many things. A lot of things. A lot of things. Too many things. No, I'm just <laughs> it's true. It's true. My wife will say that. Like, Sung, you are so shameless. Like, and I won't even go tell stories about that. But, um, but, but, but here's a, like, so I, I don't necessarily think, oh, I am bad mm. or, or I'm not good. But if I think of like where I try to hide, it's this sense of like, oh, I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that drives the sense of performance, like, and workaholism, like I need to do hard. And it's not even like I'm trying to compare myself to other people. I don't really care about them. It's just this inner competition with myself. And I'm just like, you know, I have this ideal version of myself that's probably even just so distorted. Mm. And I just drive myself yeah. to become that kind of person. And impossible. It is. Yeah. And so it, it, there is that sense of shame even in being driven mm-hmm. because there's a sense of like, okay, there's something in me that I don't like. Um, or th- uh, this is the way that when I reach this condition and state, that is when I will come to peace with myself. Right. And so I just drive and drive and drive. And it's, a again, a very different place w- than when you're at. And, you know, like you were saying, like um, – uh, like you need time to, to be alone and to think, uh, to, um, is that what you said? Like to hear myself, to, to hear yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like the thing, the thing I always, uh, say to Amy, cause I'm always like just processing things with her and, and I, I, I'm the opposite. I'm like, how do I know what I'm thinking unless I hear <laughs> myself <laughs> yeah, say it? Right. 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 And, and so even this happened last night, I, I'm like saying something and I'm like, Hey Amy, t- tell me like to, give me some ideas. And she's like, ah, you know, that's not my strong point. And it just kept talking and talking. And I'm like, Oh, great. You know, Amy, you are so helpful because you just listen. <laughs> right, right. And then when I hear myself, yeah. And so again, it's a different, it's a different side of the coin, but it's shame nonetheless. Yeah. So let's assume that things have gone really well and we've managed to work ourselves <laughs> out of this shame stage. What comes next? So the next stage, uh, Eric Erickson would call the play age. It's uh, ages three to five. That's when, um, like, just that's when 
kids are so full of energy and imagination. For me, uh, as an older brother with young, one younger brother, what we did was this was a stage where we were building spaceships and playing superheroes. Mm. And But this is also the phase, and he would say it's uh, uh, initiative versus guilt, mm. which is an interesting pairing, right? Because yeah. you don't mm. think like guilt and initiative are opposites. But he would say... This is a stage when kids become really sensitive to guilt. Uh, this is a stage when if uh, circumstances or, or conditions around their home, uh, they, they can be susceptible to feeling totally responsible and guilty for things that they had little or nothing to do with. Mm. And so it could be like a parent's divorce or even the death of a loved one, like kids this age can really internalize and go like, oh, it, uh, it's because of me right. that this happened. Right. Um, and, and so this is an important stage. So, to, And so as a parent too, and again, during these early stages, we're talking a lot about parenting, but um, it, it's when kids can perceive criticism or punishment, meaning like uh, that not only what, not only are my actions bad, but that means that I am bad mm. as a person. Right. And that's kind of back in the in the shame arena mm-hmm. a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it reminds me, one of the things that, that my wife and I determined very, very early on with our kids, and we have a lot of kids, um, <laughs> was that discipline would never be, um, would, would never constitute a break in relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, that always it was a separation of this is what you did, but... We, we, st- we love you. We want to be with you. We want you to be a part of the family. We're so glad you're here. This behavior is unacceptable. And, and it's hard. I mean, I have seen, I mean, I, I've, I've seen the opposite where discipline essentially means like, because you did this, you are no longer whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of some of the stories that you've told about the, the fights with <laughs> yeah. your dad, you yeah. know, where there's like a disowning or, yeah. um, uh, but it doesn't even have to be that far, right. right? It can kind of be like you, I don't, I don't even, I, if you've ever heard a mom say, I don't even want you near me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's communicating the same thing. Right. Um, and we just determined very early on that, that, that was never going to be the way we spoke or, or enacted discipline. Right. Right. That's so good. Cause again, unhealthy guilt means, or, or like I, I'll say this, healthy guilt, and, and guilt, it can be godly and healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because that kind of guilt should lead to repentance. Uh, at least that's what the Bible calls it. But th- that's where you understand your actions and your behaviors might be wrong or bad, but you st- at the center of it, there's this confidence that you are absolutely loved mm. by your parents, uh, by God, and that's healthy guilt versus, well, not only are my actions bad, but I'm bad. So yeah. God not only hates the sin, but he hates me. Yeah, I, I would even say, too, especially this day and age, it, uh, it could go way to the other end of the continuum where, uh, especially with over-permissive parents, uh, where they communicate, uh, th- there's no sense of firmness. Mm. Uh, then the child grows up with a sense of, like, I am loved, so completely and unconditionally that my actions, no matter how bad they are, are not bad. Right, right. Like a complete absence of guilt, essentially. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so you have unhealthy guilt on both ends of the spectrum, mm-hmm. right? I'm bad or nothing I do is bad. Yeah. A- and to walk that really thin line of like, okay, I understand that my, my actions 
our, our uh, and uh, again, let, let's relate this to our relationship with God. Like sin isn't about breaking God's law. Mm. Uh, sin is about breaking God's heart. And, and when you understand that, like, and, and if you think God is like trying to pound you because he somehow you're flawed or bad, like that will never lead to, to godly sorrow. Right. It will lead to just unhealthy guilt and self-hatred. But it's only when you understand, uh, okay, yes, my actions and, and or my behavior, my attitude is breaking God's heart. But yet at the center of it, like his love for me just is just so unfathomable mm. and runs to like not only to me, but to, uh, you know, I, I love this phrase in Exodus. It says to the thousandth generation. Yeah. His love runs through. Um, I, I think that's where you stand in the confidence where guilt or shame isn't crippling to you. I, I do wonder if if some of the the difficulties that parents have in terms of being too permissive or or the brokenness we experience in our relationship to God is because we can find it so hard to separate what we do from who we are. In some ways, I think a parent could look and say, well, I don't want to, like, if I criticize or discipline because of this behavior, the child will automatically assume that I'm saying they're bad. And we we have trouble drawing those own lines, you know, in our head. And so it would make sense that a parent would struggle to draw those lines for a child they love. But then we take it the other way, right? It's hard for us to imagine God being able to separate the sins that we commit or the ways that we turn away from him from kind of who we are inherently as a person. But being able to draw that line sort of opens up all of these. I mean, what's fascinating is that, again, I see it. It opens up the opportunity for initiative, which is the opposite. It's like, oh, there's things that I can do that that will that will move me into the place that I want to be not be not to not to like make God love me more but but like I can actually take the initiative over some of these because they're just things they're not who I am they're just things that I need to work on yeah, yeah. and kind of gives you the freedom to, to, to take some steps forward yeah no that's good and uh one Christian author I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he says, he makes this claim, and I, I think he's right on. He says, self-hatred is one of the, the most um, used weapon that Satan uses to cripple I believe it. a follower of Jesus. Oh, man, I believe it. A- and it's, it, we assume that if we feel hateful towards ourselves, we assume that God feels the same way about us. Yeah, yeah. A- and this is saying, no, 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 like that, like, uh, you know, uh, the saying goes well, like we, uh, uh, God made us in our image and we just return the favor, mm-hmm. meaning we, we've made yeah. him in our image yeah. Yeah. thinking that if, again, since I hate myself, God must feel the same way. Right. And, and I think part of the healing is like, no, no, no. How do you so like, like you were talking about in that silent retreat, how do you so immerse yourself in the presence of God and his word that his word takes precedence over any emotion yeah. or feeling yeah that you have about yourself or anybody else, including God himself. Yeah. One of the things that I've been spending a lot of time on this past year is, uh, is the notion of self-compassion, which is really different than um, sort of like positive self-image. Yeah. Right. Because self-image says either I'm so good that I'm awesome or the, again, the other side of guilt, the fact that I'm crappy in all these ways doesn't matter self-compassion kind of walks the middle line that says, okay, look, things are not as I wish they were, but guess what? There is grace and there's compassion to, 
for myself to walk this out and to make mistakes. And that for me is really a, a, a middle road that I've tried to walk because there's no way I'm ever going to lean on the side of like, oh, it doesn't matter. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's but, where I would lean. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, but self-compassion lets me move away from that guardrail of because you do this or think this way or act this way, you are therefore a horrible person. Yeah, and, and I would say self-compassion rooted in the gospel. Yeah becomes a basis for compassion towards others. Absolutely. Like, and if you have a hard time being compassionate towards others, there might be a sense that they're like, you're not receiving it vertically and you're not giving it to yourself. Yep. I mean, and the reality is that whether it's you're a parent or a boss or a spouse or a follower of Christ, you can't give away what you don't have. Absolutely. Yeah. That's good. We'll talk more next week. Yeah, what's the next uh, What's the next episode going to be about? Uh, well, we got through three to five, so it's, ever, it's whatever <laughs> stage starts at five and goes from there. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to see you next week.